0: listening to Manufactured with Kim van der Weert and Jesse Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week
1: in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. As my much wiser, but I'd like to point out nonetheless younger sister would say, I'm someone who fixates. I prefer the word persistent, but that's neither here nor there. For better or worse, this week's conversation is the result of my tendency to fixate. I first heard of Kandiani denim back in December 2019, when I was in Amsterdam for the Christmas holidays and needed a new pair of jeans. After doing some research, I made my way to a boutique denim shop to Neu I was probably their sales staff worst nightmare, no budget and tons of questions. I wanted to know which companies had sewn the jeans and where the fabrics came from. The sales staff were very informed and good-natured, and after a barrage of questions, and despite not buying anything, they kindly gave me a free copy of a magazine they published that included an interview with Candiani Denim, a denim mill in Italy. What really piqued my interest was Candiani's decision to brand their fabric. And by brand their fabric, I mean... They didn't start to make jeans themselves, they t- decided to actually brand the fabric itself. At the time, I still lived in Cambodia and was in the middle of the soul-sucking job of having to shut down a factory and consolidate two production facilities into one, in part the result of being on the losing end of some nasty price negotiations with some of our biggest customers. The idea of turning the fabric itself, instead of the finished product, into a brand struck me as an interesting way for suppliers to get more leverage at the negotiating table, a way to force a more equal distribution of wealth across the supply chain. So it's been since December that I've been plotting away and trying to find an excuse to connect with Kandiani. Fast forward to April when Jesse and I decided to start this podcast and I immediately set to work harassing them. Eventually, I was put in touch with Danielle, who, to our delight, agreed to share the Candiani story with us
0: on this podcast. But it's impossible to talk about how and why Kandiani decided to become a brand known to end consumers without covering other pieces of their story first. In this week's episode, Danielle shares Candiani's rich history as a family-owned and operated Danian meal, still operating in the same Italian town that they started in back in 1938. Why, when so many of the Italian meals were shutting down or moving east, was Candiani able to stay in Italy? We get also into Candiani's unique vertically integrated structure and how this has enabled their pioneering approach to sustainability. Why have they opted for biodegradability over recycling? And how does regenerative agriculture and cotton sourcing strategies come into play? It's only with this framing that we are really able to do justice to Candiani's decision to start branding its own fabric, which is what we will cover in the next week's episode. So please, please tune in for part two of this chat next week. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person.
1: We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find
0: out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe.
1: Danielle, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me, first and foremost. Uh, So Candiani is a denim mill, currently a denim mill, vertically integrated outside of Milan, Italy. But we have a long history. We were founded in nineteen thirty-eight um, by Luigi Candiani, basically in the same town where we currently are today. So RoboCetto Conenduno, that is outside of Milan, Italy. We're a family-owned and operated uh company for the last four generations. So we're we're now in our 80th year. And Candiani was founded as a only a textile weaving facility. And we made um, Masawa, which is a workwear fabric, um, and we were selling it in the markets in, in Milan. Uh, and the company then evolved um, with Primo Candiani, who decided to transition to making only denim fabrics. So,
1: and at that time, were you still selling mostly in Italy or were you we, um, already shifting to other markets? No,
2: pr- our main market was Italy at that time. Um, and so, I mean, the evolution of Candiani is, is really, um, a picture of the evolution, I feel like, of the apparel textile industry as a whole. Um, so then mm. in the 80s, we were, um, were, you know, just leaders in, in denim fabrics. And Gianluigi Candiani, the third generation owner, came on and he was the one that really, uh, pushed the industry towards, um, towards stretch denim basically the early two thousands was that, that evolution. So at that time, he, he was one of the first to really understand that stretch denim wasn't going to just be a fad and that it was going to be something that, you know, changed, changed the industry, um, from then on.
1: So is Kandiani the inventor of stretch denim? No, we
2: are not the inventor, but he kind of perfected it. I would say like, he really, he was the one that, that kind of technologically evolved it for its performance. So when you're talking about stretch denim, you're talking about not only its stretch, but its recovery. And so that's that's how I I think what we are really known for now. Um also being, you know, big actors in the premium denim industry. So that also was during the early two thousands.
1: So can you give us a sense of the size and scale of Kendiani? Sure so um today under um we're at in our fourth generation so
2: alberto candiani is currently the general manager and today um the scale is we have the capacity to produce about 20 million meters a year um so this is also um we're also vertically integrated mills so that means from rock cotton we go through the spinning facility the weaving or the spinning the dyeing the weaving And then the final, um, finishing department, which the finishing helps either with the performance aspects or it does, it's more aesthetic as well. From raw cotton up to the finished fabric is. What we do. so
1: basically like for people who might not know that much about the fashion supply chain, like you, you basically your your process starts when you get the raw cotton from your suppliers, and your process finishes when you hand off, let's say, bolts of fabric to it, people who are going to cut and exactly. sew it. Exactly.
2: So we sell um, brands buy the fabric from us, and then we ship generally to their garment factories wherever that may be. I mean, most of the the places that we are shipping to currently are in Tunisia, North Africa,
0: um, and Southeast Asia. I think it's important maybe for listeners to understand why it's vertical. Maybe some listeners would think, well, it's natural, no? Uh, a fabric factory started from raw cotton and finish every step and eventually you deliver something ready for cotton so that's natural but actually it's not natural for instance in china at the fabric factory would just process the cotton spinning and dyeing dyeing, and then finish then the washing effect is actually not done in fabric meal but somewhere else what uh, kandani is doing it, the brand is doing is really yeah unusual because it's yeah. really from the cotton, the raw materials, cotton until the last step finishing. So basically, what you deliver to the to the garment factory is ready to be cut and sew and make making it into a uh, pants.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I didn't really realize that. I I didn't realize how unique Kandiani was until until actually I started working there. Um, and it is it is really interesting. And I think Primo Candiani was the one that started that transition to vertical integration. And he really saw it as a means to for quality control. And when
1: was that? Was that in the that 60s? That was in
2: the 60s. Yeah. So he really yeah. saw it as a means to control the entire production process and to to really get the, the end product that they were after. So instead of having to rely on third parties, they they decided they could do it themselves. And I do think it was it was intelligent in the end because it really allows us now um, when sustainability is our priority and what we're working really is what we're focusing all of our R&D on, it enables the vertical integration of of our production process really allows for us to kind of test and evolve a lot of our sustainable innovations or technologies that we're using today because we have this kind of constant Uh, feedback loop so we can know if you know if something maybe a dye is not performing well um, or maybe the fabric is woven in a certain way like in the finishing department you will see like if there is any sort of defect immediately and so then you can go back and correct right Mm -hmm. away
1: it's interesting I want to dig into what your vertical integration means for your sustainability a bit more in a moment. Okay. But I want to backtrack a bit first because there's a lot of things that are unusual about Candiani. You're still in Italy. You have how many employees in Italy? Five
2: hundred and seventy six.
1: And all that that's all your employees are in Italy. You're not anywhere exactly, else. Exactly, right? yes. That's correct. So when many other manufacturers were choosing to leave Italy, why did Candiani choose to stay? And what, also not why, but what enabled you guys to be able to make this choice? Because I think a lot of people would have said it was just not a viable option. They would have liked to stay, but they couldn't.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, so as I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but we were basically founded in the same city that we currently operate in today. And so what that really... Means is that I mean we we basically work where we live and literally so Gianluigi Candiani the third generation owner he lives on the premise of the factory. Primo Candiani the the second generation owner the grandfather of Alberto he also has a house on the premise of the factory and so they were very I mean they were dedicated to the community it was their home it's where they're from and why they. Why they just chose to expand when they did, and forgive me, I can't remember exactly the year that they opened uh, the second second production facility in the same town. Um, I believe it was 2006, if I if I'm not mistaken. They decided to open there because, again, they were they wouldn't they didn't it didn't make sense for them to move overseas or to Turkey when the rest of the industry was moving east um because they they were dedicated to the community where they're from we have generations of families that have worked for Kandiani we currently i think have 16 families that have mul- have multiple generations working at the factory right now today and so it really is the story of a community that has created this company
1: together can you explain a little bit because a lot of other mills in Milan area did go out of business and why you think Kandiani survived when others mm. did not?
2: Yeah, I think Kanyani was able to to kind of fare this storm because they were always adap- um adapting and innovating. And I think really the Gianluigi's kind of foresight into Stratodenum is really what has carried the company over into this next generation, to be honest. And so their success in that has has kind of safeguarded them from all of these fluctuations and and complications in the market.
1: I want to go back now to the fact that Kundiani is vertically integrated and how it affects and influences your approach to sustainability. Um, One of the things you've said to me and to Jesse in the past is that you prioritize biodegradability over recycling, Mm -hmm. So can you share a little bit about what that actually means and
2: why? Sure. So sustainability for us is really a 360 degree approach. And again, going back to the vertical integration of the company that allows this approach to to be possible. Um, It's I mean, I guess historically it's been based on, on the, you know, the principles of recycle, reduce and reuse now it's evolved it's evolved to be something else almost where we're focusing a lot on on raw materials that we use so sourcing is a huge huge um thing for us whether it is you know working with cotton that is either organically produced or bci better better cotton initiative cotton or um even now we're moving into look exploring different types of farm uh, or sourcing cotton from different types of farming um, farming methods, or cultivated using different farming methods, um, such as regenerative agriculture. That's something that's really interesting for us.
1: What's regenerative agriculture? Sure, I mean this is I. Lo- it's a big question, I lo- but I love. But this I just topic. think it's important to provide some context. Yeah, sure, of
2: course. No, but I. This is my favorite topic, honestly. Like, I think I, re- <laughs> I want to become a farmer because of regenerative agriculture. <laughs> It just it's actually so it's a farming system that really prioritizes soil health. So it's it's really looking at the kind of microbiology of soil and it's about um, how to plant certain crops that that release different types of nutrients into the soil. So it's a very kind of not I wouldn't say regimented because I think there's a lot of kind of interpretation that happens based on where you are. But there is a system and a philosophy that you can never have bare soil. So it's also not about, like, tilling. It's like a no-till practice. Um, and it's something that's that's coming up. It's, it's really, I feel like, about to explode in terms of being on people's radar uh, regarding sustainability in general, but also, you know, when we're talking about things like cotton. Um, so it's a no-till practice. You have to have the, like, it always, they always... It's always ideal to have a cover crop at all times. And they've sh- they've found that it's actually has a it becomes a carbon sink. When you have healthy soils, you, ha- you it becomes a carbon sink and it basically just it regenerates the earth. So it it is like a tangible thing that you can almost see and feel that where you um you're like regenerating the environment. It's also, you know, right. focusing on biodiversity, so whether that's um you know with with planted crops or even wild like you know birds or insects it's really trying to facilitate the like re re diversification of of farmland and it's just amazing there's i've i've read and seen some um you know some examples that are just incredible there was one example in California actually where it was I think there was a like a, a torrential downpour of water and the rest of like all of all of the neighbors of this one particular farm they got totally flooded out like they lost all their crops everything was damaged and this one as opposed to as opposed to that it became like a sink for water so that's the other thing when you have healthy soil it's able to absorb the water so you you reduce the runoff um you te- keep your topsoil it regenerates the topsoil so all of these things that a lot of um People in agriculture, or those that are concerned, or those that are concerned with sustainability in agriculture, the things that um, are normally depleted with traditional, conventional agricultural systems, regenerative agriculture appears to repair. And so, I, I just think mm-hmm. it's amazing. And you know, with cotton, cotton is really discussed as a um, a thirsty crop, like something that really needs. It's kind of sensitive. It needs a lot of like insecticides, pesticides, generally speaking. But when you see um, cotton grown on on more of these regenerative systems, it becomes almost like beneficial for the soil and for for everything else.
1: It's interesting, too, because this really has to be contrasted to what you said at the beginning, which was about recycling. A lot Mm. of times when people think about sustainability, they'll think about, well, okay, my pair of jeans at the end when I'm done with them needs to be able to – or needs to be recycled into some new material, mm-hmm. right? And, there's, and that's, I think, the goal of a lot of different actors within the sustainable fashion space is to figure out ways of recycling different types of mm-hmm. materials. And one of the challenges is that the technology for recycling, especially – uh, recycling fabrics that's or that's mixed composition, so say a piece of stretch denim that is maybe cotton with some elastane is, is very difficult to recycle because the way that you would recycle cotton is not the same as the way that you would recycle elastane. Mm-hmm. And so I'm guessing you deal with a lot of critics who would say, well, your denim is mixed with elastane, therefore it's not recyclable. So, you know, you're not really sustainable. Um, <laughs> so what would you say yeah. to those critics? I mean, it's,
2: it's a big topic in the industry now. Stretch denim makes up, I think, I believe like 70 to 80% of the entire market. So stretch denim is the thing right now. Even though, I mean, there is a little bit of transition happening. People are looking for more kind of this heritage denim that may be like 100% cotton or mixed with hemp or, or things like that. But so it is definitely an issue. And you're right. Like when you mechanically, uh, recycle, Stretch denim. You end up having um, the cotton fibers, the recycled cotton fibers, end up being mixed with little pieces of elastane or polyester or, or whatever else may be in there. And so what happens is it really it degrades the quality of the recycled the recycled yarn. Mm-hmm. And so currently, you know, we have been focusing on going back to the, the issue of sourcing. So we're looking at sourcing um, different types of elastane that have a, an improved, you know, sustainable kind of performance, I guess you could say. So, you know, we work with, um, a certain, uh, a, a particular elastane, um, producer named Roica and they have, you know, innovated different types of elastane that are, you know, made from recycled material or another one that is degradable. And recently this year, and it's going to be something that we officially launch later we uh, created and patented a natural rubber elastane. And what this allows for is a biodegradable denim fabric. And it doesn't mean that it's going to biodegrade while you're wearing it. It's actually, <laughs> you need very specific conditions and bacteria to make this fabric break down. It is in no way uh, inferior in terms of quality or performance or, or anything. So you still have the same stretch and recovery capabilities that you would have in a normal like lycra elastane if not better and and then you have this added benefit at the end of its life cycle so after its you know years of use or cycling through different users it is able to be but well currently we have it's biodegradable we've done tests that have proven it's biodegradable but we are about to arrive at compostability so that's that's really what we are aiming for and what that means Going back to this kind of concept of regenerative agriculture, this and our vision for our Careva fabric, which is the name of the elastane and the fabrics um, made using this natural rubber elastane. It's actually a las- elastodna. So it's not actually an elastane, technically speaking, oh but whatever. But um, <laughs> So the idea would be that you could take this fabric or a pair of jeans and that it could be used as a um nutri like as an input for agriculture, so it becomes almost like a fertilizer in a way, and so we're currently running tests with that um about that in house right now, so we have like twelve boxes in our backyard, basically where we buried genes we're working with an agronomist who's like testing the organic matter in the boxes to see you know how it's progressing, and we actually got a result yesterday that it's uh, in six months, the organic matter in the the test boxes that we that we're using it has increased by thirteen percent. So, well, yeah, it's I mean it's amazing. So we're talking about you know around the world we see that oil or soil and like topsoils are being depleted everywhere. And so then we really feel like this is a solution that you know since the majority of components that come in a pair of jeans are from the biological cycle, they come from nature. It makes sense to put them back into that cycle. And so, you know, it's not that we're against recycling, but for the time being, it really creates an inferior product. And so it doesn't make sense to take something, you know, and we also think it's like um, a Band-Aid on a bigger problem, right? Overproduction is the the main problem. And so we've done a a number of um, recycling trials, actually, with certain brands. And what we see is they're perfectly perfectly good pairs of jeans that are actually getting downgraded into an inferior, an inferior product. So it just doesn't make sense to us. And so Mm. we think that really focusing on on producing quality over quantity and then enabling this kind of alternative to an end of life, end of life, as opposed to recycling, um, is what makes more sense for the time being. You know, until we have a recycling technology that really enables the the staple length, because that's one of the main issues, aside from it being mixed with other synthetic materials, the actual length of the cotton fiber is decreased by, I, I think, around half. And so it just becomes a weaker fiber or a weaker.
1: When it's recycled. Yeah, when it's
2: recycled. So when yeah. it's spun into a new yarn, it just becomes
1: fragile like mechanical cotton recycling, like to paint a picture of it, it's like tearing apart the fibers and then trying to like put them back together. So of course that results in an inferior Mm -hmm. quality of product, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's really kind of our greater vision, our our greater vision for circularity at the moment. Um, but again, going back to sustainability or going back to sourcing, um, Mm. the most important thing, you know, enable for, to enable a biodegradable product, it means that everything that you're putting into that needs to be of a certain quality, right? It can't be, I mean, we can't be using, I don't know, just to name a chemical, like formaldehyde or different, even though formaldehyde is not used, generally speaking, to make denim. But like, we can't be using toxic dye stuffs at the beginning, or if, if we were to, that means in the end, we wouldn't be able to achieve a biodegradable uh, fabric.
1: I want to go back to your cotton sourcing your strategy for cotton sourcing and also just where it comes from because it's actually all over the world. So, I mean cotton I, we should
2: we should be clear and, and and explain to your listeners also that you it's you have to to make denim fabrics and maybe this is all fabric, you have to source cotton from all over because it requires we have our own mix, our own like recipe for how, you know, for our fabrics and what we know the different qualities that are needed to make the our our candian quality, so that requires that we source cotton from
1: all over all over the world um, but can you elaborate on that like why is that? Is cotton from different places different quality or
2: because of the growing season so like maybe you know let's say the ivory coast in in Africa like got a lot of rain in the um, you know when the when the during the flowering, which is the critical part. And so then that kind of reduces the quality of the fiber in the end or yeah, or maybe there was a hurricane in Texas or so it just, you know, it, there there are, it's not necessarily the quality itself. It may be how it is grown. So of course, you know, the way it's cultivated will have an impact on the final quality of the fiber, but it, it really has to do a lot with kind of weather. It's, it's more, um, one of the complexities of working with organic cotton, because you have to have a single origin fabrics. So it becomes right. that, that is one of the complications and kind of, I would say, technical barrier, or, or maybe not barrier, but just complications with organic cotton. But also, so we are, so with that said, we are, are, um, you know, always working or looking for different suppliers. But going back to the importance of transparency, we are now looking to partner with cotton farmers themselves, because there's usually these me- medi- uh, mediary steps. So like usually there's the ginner and then there's the cotton trader. So we're trying to kind of.
1: And can you explain what those people do? Sure. The ginner is basically
2: <laughs> <laughs> is the um, processing step where you take all of the cotton bowls, they're called. So all of the cotton, cotton, <laughs> cotton flowery part, um, you take all the cotton bowls to the ginner and that's what extra, takes out the fiber from, you know, removes the fiber from all the seeds and the sticks and the leaves. Um, and then the cotton trader is, I mean, it's a, an industry that they, I mean, they're the mediary step between, um,
1: they're connecting to the the buyers. They
2: connect the ginner to the buyer. Um, it's a very complex (laughs) market place if you can imagine.
1: So I think that's interesting to point out when you say you're sourcing cotton, it's not like, I mean, like people who aren't in the fashion industry might think like, Oh, you must be, you must be buying from a farm, Mm. but that's really far from reality. And actually what that's the direction you're trying to go in. But that's also, again, quite unusual.
2: Mm. I mean, I, I think it's going to, it's a trend that's going to grow in the next years, five years, 10 years. Um, but yeah, it's it's it definitely one of the um, one of the complexities too with um kind of the ginning stage is you have, for example, in India, a lot of small producers that maybe have, you know, one hectare of land or even even less. And so what happens is they take all of their cotton and just dump it at the same ginner, And so it gets all mixed. And so that's where kind of the traceability becomes complicated in that step. And so. There, there are efforts because of, you know, cotton is, has been kind of branded as this, you know, evil crop. And so we need transparency in order to mitigate that because we don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to always know how, you know, this cotton has actually been cultivated. It's hard to know how the farmer's been treated if you don't know who they are. So again, it's, it's, this is a, a major priority for us. We are looking for certain farmers that again, going back to this regenerative agriculture, we're looking for farmers that are either organic or working in that regenerative way or are willing to. So we're and and I, I guess the other key piece, talking again about the ginning the ginning step, is that we're looking for farmers that have a ginner nearby. So or if not their own, because then that eliminates that kind of confusion or that one step that becomes everything becomes kind of muddled in
1: so so you do expect your cotton to continue to come from all over the world say turkey or you know different ivory coast different countries but that your hope is that more of these processes would be done like in one place so in so sort of consolidating the steps so stuff is still coming from everywhere but it's it's moving a lot less before Mm -hmm. that is that right or yeah and
2: again it just gives us the oversight on the supply chain because if it's the farmer who's actually ginning the cotton then you know we know who they are like there's no confusion there
0: it's so interesting as it it reminded me uh uh, i'm going to make a small advertisement for netflix maybe (laughs) 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 there is a uh documentary series on netflix called rotten focused on oh, agriculture oh. products yeah each episode talking about a specific uh, crop so one episode talk about coffee beans and that's mm. so interesting because it sounds so if you just ignore the words like coffee bean or coffee you would believe first the 10 minutes you would believe it's talking about government business mm. i
2: mean it's commodities basically they're a commodity so I think that's part of it that that ha- brings in these other actors such as traders and just, I mean, makes the supply chain so complex. Yeah, it's also power
0: and the profits. Mm-hmm. When you have that mm-hmm, power, mm-hmm. you can basically uh, monopolize this yeah. much market or this much profit. So it makes very difficult to have transparency or traceability, I think. That's a really great point. Yeah.
1: I'm curious about your – I want to go back finally to being vertically integrated mm-hmm. and, like, how this influences your approach to sustainability and what you're actually able to do. Because it seems like sourcing is, like, the critical point of departure. So where you get your cotton and then, like, having full control over what happens to it after that is is essential. You wouldn't be able to do what you're doing without mm-hmm that is that right um, or not? no
2: absolutely absolutely that's right and i think also as i as i briefly mentioned before i think it really comes down to us being able to test so because we have this constant feedback loop we can test and retry and retry certain innovations that were that we are that were that we're, that we're trialing
0: i was also thinking it's also a lot of uh, investment as uh, mm. you say in that's
1: what I was wondering yeah,
0: too. <laughs> for many other fabric producers, why, why would they separate, uh, uh, finishing to, to another facility? Because the name, when you need to, to do the washing process on the name, it requires lots of uh, machines, machinery, and that's expensive. So I was just thinking it must be, can they, can they raise um family owned business and for already four generations? I was wondering if there are any other investment or financing mm-hmm. yes financing yeah
2: so i mean we are we are an independent company, so it's family owned and operated fully i mean we basically r and d is our priority, and so we're operating on
1: when you say r and d de- research and research research and
2: development yeah. is is our priority. And so it means that most of our um, profit goes back into the company. And I think, you know, really, it's just our the current strategy of the company, because we see the, the value and the importance of sustainability and to be to continue to be leaders in the industry. And we really think, you know, it's kind of how we can differentiate ourselves, because we are not competitive. Um,
1: can you give a sense of like how much more expensive are you? Roughly, like, uh, roughly double.
2: So, um, you're I, I think our, on average, our, our fabrics cost between um, like four and up to seven dollar, seven, sorry, euros a meter.
1: Which for consumers like who aren't in the fashion industry, that probably doesn't sound like very much. So they're like, I pay a hundred dollars for
2: these jeans, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, beside the fabric, there are a lot of a lot of other, steps.
1: or even three hundred dollars.
2: Yeah. I mean, you should in, talk in to the, the brands; jeans. <laughs> they are yeah. the ones with the markup. But I mean, to be fair, there are beside the fabric, there are a lot of other steps that go into making a pair of jeans.
1: Hmm. And I think this is the perfect segue for what we're going to get into next week when we talk to you again, Um, but this time about how the portfolio of Kandiani customers and brands that you work with has changed and evolved over the years. And actually your strategy for becoming a brand yourself, um, which I think is really revolutionary in terms of the potential that it has to change the narrative around suppliers being so easily replaceable. So please, please come back next week. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast.
0: We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting waste this nursing is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy.
1: To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage.
0: Thanks for listening, and see you next week.